welcome to Sacred Nature Radio. I'm your host, David Campbell. Today on Sacred Nature Radio, I get to welcome Rick Kirshner. In a public career spanning 40 years, Dr. Rick Kirshner has offered a powerful approach to dealing with change that unlocks creativity, enhances team communication, and increases commitment. He developed his ideas and programs from a palette of essential attitudes, behaviors, and skills for successful interactions. In keynote speeches for association events and conferences, in seminars and training for Fortune 1000 companies, and at executive retreats, he has helped his audience find motivation to do the important work today for a better tomorrow. Dr. Kirshner is a best-selling author of numerous books and multimedia programs, including the co-authored international bestseller, Dealing with People You Can't Stand, How to Bring Out the Best in People at Their Worst, now in a third revised edition with 26 translations and over 2 million books sold, and Love Thy Customer, as well as Life by Design, and another one, How to Click with People, and the Comprehensive Communication Program, Insider's Guide to the Art of Persuasion. In 2015, he premiered his documentary film, How Healthcare Became Sick Care, The True History of Medicine. A 1981 graduate of the National University of Natural Medicine, Dr. Kirchner was an Oregon licensed naturopathic physician until 2020 when he retired his license. He is the past president of the Naturopathic Medicine Institute, which you can find at naturopathicmedicineinstitute.org, a longtime faculty member with the Institute for Management Studies, and a thought leader with Athena Interactive. His clients included many of the world's best-known organizations, including AT&T, Heineken, Kraft, NASA, Progressive Insurance, and the U.S. Army and National Guard, Starbucks, etc. Dr. Kirshner delivered his expertise in thousands of radio and television appearances, interviews, newspaper and magazine articles from CNBC and CBC to Fox, the Wall Street Journal, to USA Today. In 2016, Rick turned over leadership and ownership of the company he founded, Art of Change, LLC, to his daughter, Aiden Nippon, and now serves as an advisor. Rick lives in the Idaho Panhandle with his wife of 31 years, one-eyed cat, and five chickens, where he allows inspiration and agitation to move him to write, and where he serves as Bonner County Republican Central Committee Precinct Committeeman for the Algoma District. Rick is outspoken in his advocacy for medical freedom. In 2019, Rick shut down his Facebook account with thousands of followers and friends and his Twitter account with thousands of followers and friends in protest over growing censorship. In 2021, LinkedIn deplatformed his main business account with thousands of business contacts and followers because of his continued posting of scientific studies and scientists' opinions that countered the preferred narratives, which led to a rapid expansion in contact requests, a hundred a day from all over the world. Deplatforming was the prompt that led him to the creation of his website, and that website is talknatural.com. So that's you know the, one place you can find Rick. Yeah, you can find 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 what little of me remains online there. Yeah, uh, think about listening to your biography as it's like your whole life is passing before your eyes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, welcome to the show. And um, it's great to talk to you again. Um, it's been great to to meet you and get to know you, um, us both living now in North Idaho, having transplanted from Oregon. So, you know, you've been a, a big figure in the naturopathic medicine world for many years. So I guess one question is, is what got you started in naturopathic medicine in the first place? Well... So when I was uh, 16 years old, somebody in Cincinnati where I was growing up uh, took me into this little health food store in downtown Cincinnati. It was run by this old guy. I wish I could remember his name. I had, you know, fresh ground flour and a few 
uh, locally grown vegetables. And it wasn't much to speak of because back in 1960, I guess that would be 65, uh, health food stores weren't really a thing. Uh, but this guy had one and I went in there and I became fascinated. And I remember uh, picking up a couple books and bringing them home and reading them and thinking, wow, this, this, uh, this sounds really interesting. My uncle was a, a somewhat famous doctor in Cincinnati at the time. My family thought I was going to grow up and follow in his footsteps and be a doctor. And uh, so I had an interest in medicine and this idea of healing really appealed to me way more than the idea of medicine. So fast forward a few years, I wound up uh, when the Yom Kippur War broke out in Israel. I had family over there and friends, and I decided I wanted to go and help. But when I got there, nobody needed my help. The country was in a deep depression. 2,000 people had died, 2,500 people had died. Everybody knew somebody had died in the sneak attack that started that war. And agriculture was at a complete standstill. There was literally nowhere to go and nothing to do. And everybody was down in the dumps. And the only work I could find was working for a village naturopath in a vegetarian village in the mountains. And she was amazing. She, her name was Romitsur. She was 83 years old. And at that time, me being about 20, I guess, she could run circles around me. She had so much energy, so much vitality. Uh, her windows were open all winter long. She just seemed to, to know what she saw around her in her environment so she could have a meal while she's out walking on a trail. And uh, she made medicines and people came from all around to be treated by her. She had a line out the door most days. And I'm talking from other countries that came specifically to see Roma. And I remember thinking, wow, this is so cool. I wish this was something I could learn how to do. But I figured it was just some old-fashioned thing that was over except for Roma. I came back to the United States. I was in a health food store in Cincinnati. I ran into the little sister of a guy I played rock and roll with in high school, uh, Ginger, and she had something under her arm. I said, what's that? She says, oh, I'm applying to a naturopathic school out in Oregon. And you know that proverbial light bulb going on in your brain? That was my moment. I was like, that's what I want to be. So that meant going back to school. I did my pre-med as fast as I could. I got three years' worth of work done in two and a half years and uh, went to national. And that's how it all started. Yeah. And are, I'm sure national was a bit different when you went there than when I went there. It's And it's gone through quite a few ups and downs since. But uh can you give us a sense of what it was like to be there at that time? Well, I'll tell you this. Um, nobody expected anything to be handed to them. We were all pretty radical revolutionaries when it came to health. We were looking for the better way, an alternative to the conventional system. Pretty much everybody I went to school with had somebody in their personal life that had been treated by the conventional system and, in in all of our opinion, died because of that treatment or got sicker because of that treatment. So we were all there highly motivated to learn an alternative to giving people petroleum derivatives and cutting off troublesome body parts and calling that healthcare. So uh, the problem was we didn't, there wasn't a lot of money for our profession at the time. We were barely known. I think there were at the time 11 states that had some kind of a licensing law. Uh, Oregon had one of the best licensing laws in the country at that time. That's not saying a lot. And uh, the school was in the old postal building in downtown Portland. So there was a greasy spoon diner at the front door and a pawn shop across the way. Uh, and if you could make it past all of that, you get up to the third floor. And that was where our college was. And we were motivated. We wanted to know everything. I mean, you know, I compare that to some of what I've seen in more recent years where people expect, they expect all of this has been this way forever, that they, you know, things should just come to them. It wasn't like that for us. We had to reach out and grab it and make it happen. And at that time, there was no uh, infrastructure to support the profession generally. Mm -hmm. um, there was no national association. There were no state, hardly any state associations. Um there was no institutes. Uh, we, we had all, hardly any support at all. 
It was just us doing what we thought was right to benefit humanity and to learn everything that we could. Um, so yeah, so that's that's what it was like in those days. It was pretty meager. Yeah, but it sounds like you know people really had a lot of sincerity and authenticity, and you know were really motivated. Oh yeah, we. You know, there were a few elders around it in those days. I say that now as a guy in his seventies, but in that when I was uh, when I was young, there were a few elders around uh, in our profession. Uh, people like John Bastier, for example, and and Boucher, and uh, good heavens, uh, Bapnik, the who who delivered more babies than probably any doctor on the planet. So we wanted to learn from these guys, and they had a lot to share with us and a lot to teach, and we tried to capture as much of that knowledge as possible so we could not not only actualize it in our own practices someday, but also share it with others. Um, it was an exciting time, I got to say. Uh, you know, the, the world, the, the opportunity environment looked huge in those days. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was almost uh, there's nowhere you couldn't go if you were really committed and really determined, and we formed really tight friendships. A lot of us and some of my best friends up until the COVID era uh, were from my days at National. Yeah. So a lot has changed, uh, but I have really mostly fond memories of all of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, you know, when I was at National and. And people would ask me about what it was like to be there. My description was, uh, it's kind of like being inside of a crucible. <laughs> because, yeah. every, you know, going into it, I thought I was already interested in natural medicine for maybe 10 years before that. So I figured, oh, I've got a leg up. I know what I'm talking about. But the process of going through a medical program is so intense um, that it really it's sort of an alchemical process of transformation. And yeah, I think I met some of, I made some of my closest friendships during that time as well. Cause I didn't know there were so many people who were like-minded. You know what I mean? I growing up, it's like, you feel like you're the only one in the town you're from. You know what I mean? So, um, but yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting. You said the health food store thing is sort of where it got started. I think that's probably where it got started for me too. <laughs> going to health food stores. <laughs> but um, yeah, I ended up actually working in the settlements department of a health food store in college. And I think that's where I started realizing, huh, there's a whole industry that does this health thing. <laughs> well, you know, there is, a, there is a whole industry that does it now. But back when I was in school, there were no supplement companies yeah. serving, no herbal medicine companies. Maybe there was one. Uh, serving our profession. And a lot of the companies that now serve the profession had their start from people that went through that program a year or two before I did. Right. So, uh, and then, you know, one of my classmates, Ed Allstadt, founded Eclectic Institute. Ed made some of the most amazing uh, products on the planet at the time because he was so committed to the quality of everything. And uh, Bruce Canvasser, Jerry Schlesser, Corey Resnick, um, Oh, I know I'm leaving somebody off and I'll remember we're done talking. Anyway, four, four NDs who graduated, I think, two or three years before I did, uh, they founded uh, Naturopathic Formulations, which became NF Formulas. Uh, I don't know who owns it now, but we made our own medicines. We'd go into, uh, you know, in, in the clinic, we'd go behind this counter and we'd have all these herbs on the on the shelves and we'd make our own medicines. And uh, I remember my father was... Uh, had a couple of health problems while I was in school and he asked me if there was anything I could do for him. And I sent him a couple of formulas and they both worked and he was like, wow, that's amazing. And he really made the effort with taking as many drugs as possible during his life. I think under the influence of uh, my education. so that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, maybe we can pivot to some of the things you, you've done over your career. Um, I know you you said you kind of have a lifelong interest in mind-body medicine, and I think that's an awesome topic. And it, I think it sort of dovetails into your work with communication um, that you've done, you know, with 
a lot of your books and and speaking engagements as well. So so how'd you get sort of interested in that aspect of the medicine? Well, it started while I was a student at National. I was in my third year. I got a call to come to the academic dean's office, and that was Dr. Jim Sensenig. And I thought I was in trouble because I was outspoken even then. So I didn't know why I was being called to the dean's office. But I went in there, and he said, I need you to go on this TV show and represent the school. And I was like, well, why me? And he said, and he, and I got to tell you, when he said really had an impact on me, I believe it's the main reason for the answer to why me. He said, nobody else is available. So I wound up representing the school on this town hall program. There were 70 to 90 invited guests who were stakeholders in the topic at hand, which that day was uh, alternatives in healthcare. And the guy introducing the show tells everybody, says, now, look, if you have something you want to say during this show, you should get your hand up in the first 20 minutes because the last 40 minutes, everybody's going to have something to say and I'm not going to have time for you. So I'm sitting there and I hear him say this and I think, wow, I better get in the queue. So the show starts and I put my hand up just trying to get ahead of everybody else. And instead of him finishing his intro, he points at me and now I have two shotgun microphones running at me. <laughs> mounted on I totally blanked out. But I still talked, which ha still happens in my life. Anyway, I totally liked out, but I still talked. And whatever I said, and I to this day don't know what I said, there was an MD in the audience who, for the next three weeks, called the school trying to get a conversation with me. <laughs> and, and I didn't want to take the call. But uh, finally, the head of the lab said, you have to take the call. This guy's driving me nuts. So I'm standing in the hallway on a cell, on a payphone, talking to this guy in the hallway of the clinic, and uh, he says, uh, "I would like to hire you." I said, "I'm not looking for a job." He said, "I'd like you to be my physician's assistant." I said, "I want to be a doctor." He said, "Well, as my physician's assistant, you'll actually have more power and authority to affect people's lives than you ever will as a naturopath. I said, I don't care. I started down this road. I'm three quarters of the way through this program and I'm going to finish what I started. He said, look, would you at least meet me for lunch and hear my proposal? Well, you know, when you're a student, somebody offers to buy you lunch. The answer is probably going to be yes. I said, can I pick the place? He said, yes. I said, can I th bring three of my classmates? He said, Because <laughs> you got to look out for your, your friends, right? So- yeah. Four of us met this guy in downtown Portland for a meal. I brought Rick Brinkman, who was my best friend and co-author on a lot of these books, and a couple other guys. Uh, I know I brought Stan Byerly. I can't remember who the fourth person was. Anyway, two of the guys got up and left after they ate. That left me and Rick in the booth with the guy, and he said, look, he says, I can tell from watching you on that show that you want to be a great doctor, don't you? And I said, yes, I do. He said, well, there's two things you're not learning in school that you need to learn in order to be a great doctor. And being the young, somewhat smart alecky person that I was, I said, oh, yeah, like what? <laughs> he said, you need to learn how to listen. And he paused. And then he said, and you need to learn how to talk. And my response was, why? And he said, because most of your patients will get better if you just listen well to them. And most doctors make their patients sick by the way they talk to them. And I had what I would call a blinding flash of the obvious. I was like, whoa, that's profound. Yeah. So I said, I'm not interested in a job. He said, then let me be your mentor. And Rick came along on the ride and this guy gave us books to read. He sent us to seminars and training programs. Uh, we actually studied NLP with the two guys that started that back in 1979. We went and lived on the campus in Santa Cruz uh, for 21 mm. days for residential training. Um, and it's just opened my mind to the impact that language has on the human nervous system and the impact the human nervous system has on hormones, organ function, et cetera, et cetera. And I really got so into this that it's all I wanted to do. I, uh, I, when I was in practice, I like to think of it as talking my patients out of being sick. Yeah. So. Well, that's pretty cool. 
Yeah, I definitely had a few experiences. Mine, I, my knowledge of NLP is extremely minimal. Um, although I think I understand it somewhat in principle. Um, but I think the example that I saw of a few of my instructors and the one I, that comes to mind the most clearly was, um, Charles Lev, who's an acupuncturist. He's also a musician, an astrologer, and he used tuning forks that were tuned to astronomical orbits. So he, he had this kind of, you know, very kind of alchemical way of operating. But the thing that actually struck me is the way he spoke to people, because he just had such a sort of genuine uh, compassion for people. And he, the time I spent with him, a lot of it was in community clinics where, you know, it was mostly Medicaid patients or some people who didn't even have, you know, Medicaid, they didn't have any insurance or any ability to pay. So it was a lot of people in really tough situations. And, um, some of them, you know, were terminally ill or had, you know, illnesses that were not going anywhere for, for the rest of their lives, I'll say. And, um, but I could see just the way he spoke to some of these people, how he would transform their, their day, at least, I assume probably longer than, than that, you know, just by showing them so much love and compassion, they just lit up. And sometimes it would be, you know, a, a few tears and, but they are usually sort of, you know, joy in e that little, you know, stream of light through the clouds kind of thing. And it made a big impression on me. So I, I do, I, I kind of feel exactly what you're saying, which is like, the conversation is ultimately maybe the most important part of practicing medicine. Um, because if someone's convinced they're sick, they can't get better. <laughs> um, yeah. Giving them a, an authentic sort of thread of hope to follow, you know, that, that they truly believe in is something that can really, yeah. Initiate transformation. Absolutely. It can. I, I was, um, I just shared this with somebody yesterday that back in the, in my day, uh, that we had a saying, there's no such thing as, um, an incurable disease, but there is such a thing as an incurable patient. And the basic idea is that if somebody is locked into a mindset that produces illness, unless they change that mindset, the illness, even if you can mitigate it or ameliorate some of the difficulty of it with herbs or nutrition or adjustments or acupuncture, even if you can impact it, you can't have a sustained result if the problem with that, if the thing that created the problem persists. So mindset is where most of our responses to life kind of begins. You know, the things that we uh, see and hear and feel and smell and taste and the way we put those things together like tinker toys into sets of assumptions that then lead to behaviors. And those behaviors produce experiences. And those experiences are almost always reinforcing of the assumptions that produce the behaviors that led to those experiences. Mm -hmm. So you got to know, where can I influence the change here to get the maximum benefit with the least amount of effort? And the answer isn't focusing on behavior. It's focusing on what's driving behavior. Whereas right. you able to get somebody to change their diet or like one of my colleagues said what is this about this patient i have this resistant patient she won't give up sugar like giving up sugar is the therapeutic goal i'm like that's not the therapeutic goal if you want that person to heal number one quit calling them resistant because they don't do what you say and realize there's something they're defending yeah and you should find out what that is and help them be more resourceful about it their behavior will naturally change if their mindset changes. Yeah. So that's how I approached it uh, when I was working with the patients. And even in the seminars and workshops that I did and the coaching that I did and all these things, this has always been my prime concern is the mindset driving behavior, not the behavior producing experiences. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Yeah. The sugar thing comes up a lot, obviously, in our culture. And the way I approach it is, you know, from a Chinese medicine perspective, the sweet flavor is associated 
with the earth element, which is associated with nourishment, but also nurturing. So there's often, it's in place of a feeling of being nurtured. So there's often some underlying feelings of abandonment that the sweet flavor is used to ameliorate. Um, So like you said, unless, you know, just telling someone to stop eating sweets, yeah, they can maybe do that for a while, but they'll usually come back to it because if they never, you know, resolve that feeling of abandonment, they're always going to have that craving. Um, so yeah, it, it, uh, we can, we can try to, you know, just be disciplined, but yeah, I agree with you. It's, it's ultimately not a long-term fix. And, you know, that, that brings up this whole idea of how do we have self-control in our lives? Because I, I personally don't believe willpower is, um, making yourself do something. That's not the way I think of willpower. I call that want power. You know, I make myself something because there's something I want more than something else. So I'm wanting to do the thing that gets me there. Give, me yeah. a, give you an example. Uh, when I was a student, uh, I had a baby in the house and my office uh, was up on the third floor of this house in Portland. And I get home from school and, you know, we we're doing 25 credit hours a semester. It was pretty grueling. And lots of, you know, you're really in your head all the time, trying to yeah. learn, trying to remember, trying to sequence things in a way that makes it useful. Um, and I go get home from, from school and hug my family. And then I go up to my office because I had homework. And I'd sit down and I'd look at the homework or look at the books that I'd been looking at all day anyway. And I think, I'm hungry. So I go downstairs and I make some popcorn and then I bring the popcorn back up to my desk and I sit there and eat the popcorn, stare out the window, just kind of let go a little. And I was like, I'm sleepy. So I close my eyes, I put my feet up, take a nap. Time is passing. You only have so much time in a day. I've got homework in front of me. I could not make myself do the homework. Finally, I had this aha about want power. I thought, do I really have to do this homework? No. What happens if I don't do it? I probably won't pass. What happens if I don't pass? I probably won't become a doctor. What happens if I don't become a doctor? I'll fail to fulfill something that all my life I've been told is what I'm supposed to be. So what do I want? I want to be a doctor. How bad do I want it? I want it bad enough to get this homework done. And you know, after a few times through that sort of cycle, doing the homework was not hard because my motivation became very clear. The mindset I needed became very clear to me. This is why I'm doing it. I'm not doing it because somebody told me to do it. I'm doing it as a step along the way to getting something I really want. Well, that's... Yeah. I I think, yeah, having clear motivations and a clear sort of vision of where you're headed really helps, definitely. That's been something, you know, I'm I'm still sort of early on in my career and I've just, you know, for the first time have my own business over this past year. And um I staying motivated is a is a big part of this. <laughs> Things are going pretty well now, but you know, getting through that first year of like, all right, so how am I gonna find people who wanna come in here? <laughs> uh but yeah, you just gotta hold your vision and you know keep expressing it. That's what I find is you know, finding as many opportunities to express what it is I do and what I love about what I do to people in the community is basically the way to, you know, I'm not trying to hard sell. I, in fact, I think hard selling really turns people off in general. Uh, people hate yeah. being sold. And I wouldn't want someone to come in and see me if they don't want to what I do, because then we're just going to have a weird interaction that they'll probably have, you know, bad feelings about. I want them to, if they're going to come in, I want them to really enjoy it so that they want to tell their friends about it. You know what I mean? So yeah, I just, I think, and you know, I, I think that's one thing about natural medicine is I hope most of the people who get into it are passionate about it. I think, you know, (laughs) I definitely saw some weird things. The people I became close with were all very passionate about what we do. Um, there's definitely always like a few people where you're like, how did you end up here? <laughs> I can 
got a few of those too. <laughs> <laughs> like, did you just not be, you just couldn't get into a conventional school or what? <laughs> we got a too. Yeah. But we had one guy who was like, did he just walk in off the street and they let him take a seat? I, yeah. I swear, I never knew what he when he'd speak. I never knew what anything he said meant. Uh, he just seemed so spaced out, but he was part of the program. You know, uh, David, you bring up this uh, this idea of how we motivate ourselves. And towards the end of my writing and speaking career, well, I can't say the end of my writing career because I'm working on a fourth edition of the only people you can't stand right now. Nice. Uh, by the way, 27 languages. This is the German edition that just came out. Kind of exciting. Very but, cool. Um, one of the things that I focused on in the last few years of my speaking career specifically was understanding motivation at a deeper level. And the reason I decided to study it and to learn more about it and to organize my thinking about it was uh, when I would tell people, you know, you know, you, you stand around with people and go, so what do you do, right? That's kind of a normal thing when you're standing with people you yeah. don't know very what you do. And I could have said, I'm a doctor. I could have said, I'm an author. I could have said all a bunch of things. But my favorite thing to say was, well, I'm a speaker. And the reason I love to say that was because being a speaker is as close to my rock and roll fantasy as I'll ever get. I, you know, you walk out on stage, people applaud. When you're done, you take a bow, they hand you a check. It's a pretty nice gig being a speaker. And, uh, Inevitably, when I'd say I'm a speaker, people would say, oh, a motivational speaker. It was like instant. Oh, a motivational speaker. And I hated hearing that. And the reason that I hated hearing that was, number one, you can't really motivate anyone but yourself. And number two, um, there was a, a TV show that was very funny back in the day called Saturday Night Live. I no longer watch it because I don't find it funny, but back in the day it was hysterical in the early days. And they had a character... A guy named Chris Farley played a character who was a motivational speaker. That was and one of my favorites. It was so good. And and basically the guy was the loser who lived in a van down by the river eating government cheese. So whenever somebody said, oh, a motivational speaker, I'd think of Frank, of this guy, I forget his name. And I'd be like, I don't want to be that guy. So I would go, no, <laughs> a speaker. So one day it occurred to me, this is a big word for people. This means a lot to people. And I'd never really given it enough attention. You know, I figured out want power. I figured out willpower is being able to say no to something. Want power is what you say yes to because there's something you want as a result of it. But I was like, wow, I should, I should learn more about this motivation idea. So I did. And there's not a whole lot of good stuff on it, at least there wasn't at the time. I think there's quite a few resources now, but at the time I became interested, there's very little about motivation. And I developed my own model. I did what any any thinking person would do when you can't find what you need. You invent something, right? So I invented a motivational model, which I always tell people when I die, there's two things I want to be remembered for. One is my hiccup cure and the other is my motivational model. So, so in that motivational model, what I discovered was that all, all our motivations can be boiled down to two things, fear and desire. So there's things we don't do because we fear and there are things we do because we desire. And I, I like to think of desire as something that has a long-term effect. So, you know, you're a little kid. I want to grow up and be an astronaut or a cowboy. Well, that can keep you going your entire adulthood until you achieve whatever that was that you wanted, that you desired. Fear doesn't work that way. Fear is a short-term kick in the rear when you don't feel like moving. Fear is basically, you know, get going. Otherwise, you're in trouble. Mm -hmm. And... The problem with most people with health issues is when they come to see a natural medicine doctor, they're more motivated by fear than they are by desire. I don't want to be sick. I don't want to turn out like my parent. I don't want to get this thing. I don't want this to get worse. It's fear. That's all fear. So if you want to do something transformational with patients and anybody who's effective, and I assume you do this with patients, 
it's reframing that fear into, well, so what do you want to get? Where do you want to go? What do you want to have? What's the experience we're working towards? Because if you can tell me that, I can help you achieve that. But if I'm the only one who has a desired outcome here, one of us isn't doing their part, and I don't think we have any work together. So fear and desire. So when I came up with this, boil it, it down to these two ideas, I thought, well, the problem with that is it's so vague. It's so general. It's so nonspecific. What could you actually do with this? People have very particular issues and specific problems and things they face in life that are feel very unique to them, even if they're not. How would I apply this? And so I decided to break fear and desire down into six categories to be more specific. And so in each of these six categories, there's a toward side, desire, and an away side, fear. And I find that people that are highly motivated have both fear and desire. It's why they're successful. So the fear tempers the desire and the desire diminishes the control of the fear in their life. Mm -hmm. So in these six categories, the first category is the, uh, and I don't know if I can remember all of these right now. I have been retired a few years and haven't presented this in a long time. But the first one is values. And values is all about right and wrong. People are motivated to do what's right, and they're also motivated not to do what's wrong. Now, of course, there are some people that are motivated to do what's wrong and not to do what's right. That's the people with criminal tendencies who are mentally insane. But most people, I think 92% <laughs> of the human race, um, they have a sense of right and wrong, an inherent sense of right and wrong. And maybe it was reinforced by their childhood. Maybe it wasn't. But that's a that's a motivational factor, doing what's right, not doing what's wrong. And in my case, this is huge. My mother installed a program in my brain about doing the right thing that runs so deep that I can't help myself. I see something that's the right thing to do, the right thing to say, the right time to stand up. I can't help myself. I have to do it because of this program installed by my mom about you always do what's right, even if it's unpleasant or uncomfortable and everybody quits talking to you, which mm -hmm. I got to experience when COVID happened. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, and even before that, just talking about childhood vaccination, because, oh my God, talk about touching the third rail in our society. How mm -hmm. dare you question these life-saving things? I'm like, well, what I'm questioning is the science used to justify imposing a one-size-fits-all product from the from the most corrupt industry on the planet, the pharmaceutical industry, into every child. That's that's what I'm questioning. Okay, so anyway, that's the right and wrong, the values motivation. You want to hear any more of this? I got plenty yeah. of it. No, I like it. All right, well, so the second motivation I thought about was gain and loss. And that's what I call the reward motivation. Because some people do things just because there's a carrot dangling in front of them. And some people don't do things because there's a stick waiting for them if they do. So reward is a big motivation for a lot of people. I'm not one of them, but if you ever met a gambler, that this is their driving motivation. They stand, they want to risk everything because there's something to gain, that reward, gonna to try to get that yeah. reward. Yeah, you see those little old ladies putting their retirement money in a slot machine in Las Vegas. <laughs> Wait near that ding, 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 ding. They're willing to throw it all away on the chance. Uh, my dad told me when I was young, he says, don't buy lottery tickets. I was like, why not? He said, it's called voluntary taxation. <laughs> I don't, and I don't buy lottery tickets because he said that to me. So, So that's the reward motivation. The third motivation I thought of is the challenge motivation. And that's where people take something on to see if they can't, yeah. to test themselves. And the other side of the challenge motivation, see if I can, on the other side is that um, uh, I'm going to, if if I fail to do this, I'm a failure, right? If, like, if I fail to meet the challenge, success and failure, that's, that's that challenge motivation. So if you talk to somebody that runs a marathon, for example, and you ask them, why would you do this to yourself? 
Why would you run for so much time and do all this, or a triathlon? Why would you do this to yourself? Put yourself through all of this. Why? And they go, I love the challenge. It's a big motivation. I have a friend uh, with the Naturopathic Medicine Institute, Lorraine Young. She runs every day, miles and miles, runs. I don't run. I walk. And I'm like, why would you do that to yourself? She says, Oh, it's great. I love the challenge of it. It's really invigorating. I'd love to see if I can do do this and do that. So I had my daughter did a triathlon once and I asked her that question, why'd you do that? She said, I want to see if I could. I said, Well, how'd that work out for you? Was it more desire or more fear? She said, Dad, right up to the last couple of yards, it was all desire. And then I got was so close to the end that the only way I could finish was if I kept kicking myself so I wouldn't fail just to finish this thing I started. So I'm like, all right, that's the challenge motivation. The next one I thought of is the esteem motivation. And that's where we do something because people are going to either either extrinsic esteem or people are going to admire us for doing it or intrinsic esteem where I'm going to feel like I'm a better person for having done something like that, for improving myself in some way. So that's the desire side. The other side of it is that low self-esteem thing, the fear of not being good enough, of not, uh, you know, not being worthy of your own uh, respect or the respect of the crowd around you. And I will tell you, for a lot of people in show business, for example, they're driven by this thing of other people's opinion. They want that's why they have all those award shows where they dress up and everybody, you know, they praise each other for couple of hours. Why do they do that? Because that being valued by others, being seen as worthy is what drives them. It yeah. drives them. So I know there's the fifth one and it's escaping me at the moment. Uh, the last one is where I boiled everything down to where an amoeba could be motivated. And that's where it's all about um, pain and pleasure. So pain would be the fear side and pleasure would be the reward side. And I bet everybody listening to your podcast can think of something they do for no other reason than it feels good. And I bet everybody listening to your podcast can think of something they don't do because it would hurt. So sometimes that's the driving motivation. But here's what I was able to do with this. So I've written a number of books. The first book, which is the most successful book, took a lot of time. We started that book in 1990, was published in 1994, and it's still going uh, working on a fourth edition of it right now. It's sold millions of copies. But I got better at writing after that book because, you know, we took forever on every single thing in that book, just drilling down, drilling down. And I, I realized my problem wasn't the work. It was the motivation to write the book. That's why it took so long. We're fighting with ourselves internally yeah. to get it done. So I came up with this idea of stacking motivations before taking on a project. And as a result, if I say I'm going to do something, it's effortless for me because I'm already motivated to do it. There's no question in my mind. I'm not at war with myself. And the way the way you do this is you basically come up with a reason to and a reason not to for all six categories. You go, all right, what makes doing this the right thing to do? What makes not doing it the wrong thing to do? What makes yeah. doing this the something I, what might I gain if I do this? What do I lose if I don't? What's the challenge of this? How do I fail if I don't? What's the, how does this make me a better person? What am I if I don't do it? That kind of thing. And you come up with 12 reasons, six of towards and six of away. And then you build your base as the strongest motivator, which in my case is always the right thing to do. That's, that's at the bottom of my stack. I'm going to build on that. And yeah. then you just lay it in there. So for some people, it's desire, 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 fear, fear, desire. For other people, it's desire, fear, desire, fear, desire, fear. But however you stack that up, now you know why doing something doesn't take all that effort because you're not at war with yourself. So that that's the motivational model. I like that. Thank you. You know, one of the ways I... I think about motivation. I think it's kind of similar. Um, I mean, the 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 fear and desire reminds me a lot of um, maybe like Vedic and Buddhist thinking as well. 
because I think that that's explored a lot um, in some of the things I've read. In the in Chinese medicine, you know, there's this idea. So there's the five Shen. Shen is roughly translated as spirit, although I think in some ways it's almost like Holy Spirit, where it's like the, the transcendental nature of consciousness. It's not necessarily personal. But the five Shen are how it breaks down into the personal. So below Shen, you have the Hun, which is like we might translate as like the astral self or the the, the self we are in our dreams. Um, we have the E, which is our intention. We have the Po, which is like the etheric body, which is more like that which animates the body, not necessarily the identity when we're you know in an out-of-body state, where, which is the astral. And then we have the jur, and the jur is often translated as the will, but there's also another translation because there's the five jur, which are the five emotions. And I had a hard time understanding, well, why is the why are the five wills the five emotions? You know, how does that work? And then I realized, well, if we think about emotion as to as related to the word motive, like will is about what motivates us, right? Like will is about sticking with a motivation sort of and so i i realized that that's how they're connecting like the five wills are really the five motives and so in chinese medicine we talk about like anger um fear um joy what is it um uh, worry and grief as the five emotions and in a way, so these are all, in a sense, negative. Joy is the one that sort of that stands out. I also think the other side of joy is um, hatred, uh, specifically because it's associated with the heart and with the fiery emotion. And so I think what they meant by joy was like something that brings people together, kind of like loving enjoyment of, of a person. Like that's when joy comes out the most is when you reunite with someone. So I was thinking the opposite force is hatred and it's not, which is not re really represented in the classical text. So um, anyways, all of that being like, I think could, if we were to sort of, you know, work on it a little bit, could probably fit somewhat into your model as like, here's the negative motivations um, as sort of emotions um, that are represented in those categories. I don't know. Maybe it would be a little bit of a stretch, but it's kind of in in a Chinese medicine sense how I've been thinking. Because um, sometimes I I feel like the Chinese language is so different from English that it forces me to sort of twist my thinking or bend my thinking until I find a an insight that that goes across the two. Um, but yeah, the five yeah. element. Go ahead. Well, I would say this about these two models and blending them. Uh, I love models. The nice thing about a model is it doesn't have to be true. It just has to work. So right. Uh, so here I have a motivational model. Are there really only six motivations? I don't know. Are there really only five shins? I don't know. But it, it doesn't work if you operate through that. And if it does, you can go, okay, it's a good model. Right. So. Uh, spend my career developing the truth about things. I spend my career developing models and I like having lots of models. I like having a toolbox full of models because one may fit and one may not. So I would, I'd be like in Ghostbusters, don't cross those streams. Uh, each one probably has uh, its own intrinsic value wherever you would apply them. Right, right. Yeah, and I think the the five element system as it runs through all of Chinese medicine theory kind of connects, you know, one thing to another in that sort of meta model, say. Um, but yeah, I just, I like kind of seeing if I can blend things. If I can find an angle at which they sort of, you know, reflect one another, um, that's always, I feel like there's always fruit in, in sort of letting that process work its way out. Um, but yeah, it's, it's fascinating to think about. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to find out what write down all six of your motivational categories because I'm myself trying to get myself to write a book here, which I do feel like is my duty in a way. Like I have been working on these ideas for 
most of my life at this point. And I feel like I've come to enough insights around some of these topics that if I don't get it out into a book, I will be extremely disappointed in myself. So, but hopefully I have plenty of time to do that. Although I would like to do it sooner than later, obviously. I'll be interested to try working with some of that and motivation stacking. Yeah. Happy to do that with you if you ever want to talk it through. You know, um, I would say this about writing a book. Um, I think that when we write for ourselves, that's how we get that's how we get in the right zone to do these books. We don't write for the reader, we write for the writer. Uh, for me, it was always about clearing up my thoughts, organizing my thoughts, finding out how to make something make sense to me. And, you know, a nice benefit is that if you do a good job of that, other people read it and it makes sense to them. But one of my favorite books uh, of my entire life is Buckminster Fuller's book, Critical Path. Uh, it's a, you know, Bible thickness. It's a lot of words. And Bucky... It was a holographic thinker. So you don't really know what he means by a word till you read the whole sentence. You don't know what the sentence means till you read the whole paragraph. You don't know what the paragraph means till you finish the section. You don't know what the section means until you finish the book. And then like a string of dominoes, okay, I get it. Yeah. Uh, one of the hardest things I ever read in my life, but he clearly was writing for himself. And that so inspired me when I started writing. If you'd like to listen to the rest of the conversation between myself and Dr. Rick Kirshner, you'll find the remainder of the conversation on Patreon, which is about another half hour of content for those who support the podcast. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. If you want to join the Sacred Nature Radio community, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and especially Patreon. While Patreon will continue to have special extras such as uncut video footage and exclusive episodes, I want to shift to maybe having a better way of interacting and supporting the show through unique NFTs created from episode art and other projects I've worked on. So if you've enjoyed any of the content of the show, make sure to check the show notes for more information. If you want to find me on Noster and other decentralized social media platforms, I usually go by the handle DuirVid, D-U-I-R-W-Y-D-D. You can email me at sacrednatureradio at gmail.com or encrypted at deepentropy at protonmail.com. If you like the podcast, make sure you review it on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen from. This is David Campbell signing off. I hope you have a blessed day.